0: I invite you to turn your Bible book of Jeremiah. We're going to begin reading in chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to actually start our message this morning a little back farther in chapter 1, but we want to press on in our Bible reading. Jeremiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I'll read out the New King James Version, as is our custom. Uh, God's word declares, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord. I remember you, the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal. When you went after me in the wilderness, in a land not sown, Israel was holiness to the Lord, the firstfruits of his increase. All that devour him will offend, disaster will come upon them, says the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel, thus says the Lord. What injustice have your fathers found in me, that they have gone far from me? Have followed idols, and have become idolaters. Neither did they say, Where's the Lord? Who brought us who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through the land of deserts and pits, through the land of drought and a shadow of death, through a land that no one crossed and where no one dwelt. I brought you into bountiful country to eat its fruit and its goodness, but when you entered you defiled my land, and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, Where is the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. The rulers also transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. Therefore, I will yet bring charges against you, says the Lord, and against your children's children I'll bring charges. For pass beyond the coast of Cyprus and see. Send to Kedar and consider diligently and see if there has been such a thing as a nation changed its gods which are not gods but my people have changed their glory for what does not profit be astonished O heavens at this and be horribly afraid be very desolate says the lord for my people have committed two evils they have forsaken me the fountain of living waters and hewn themselves cisterns broken cisterns that can hold no water Last week we had opportunity to see the Lord give indication to his prophet Jeremiah of the comingness of his judgments. That they were in the early stages, but they were sure to come, and the image of that was the almond tree. We come to a second image that also implies that God is active, that he is ready to do something, that he is not just sitting back and letting uh, Israel trample all over him but that he is ready to take action and that is in the vision or in the scene of the uh, boiling pot and uh, we find that Jeremiah is confronted with this second vision the second item and uh, he sees a boiling pot and facing from the north and we find that uh, this has a double purpose not only to connect us to last week when we talked about the Coming nature of it, that God is at work um, among the nations out there. Uh, he's just he's not he's not only at work in Israel. He is also uh, at work in the history of what is going on in the other nations as well as we talked about last week. And so we are going to be introduced to that nation a little bit. Well, at least to the people group. The region um, is going to be more uh, specifically determined as we go but he uh, calls upon us to see that this is all boiling and it's already there's already a fire there i've already initiated the things that have to happen for the judgment to come now we might look at this and draw a conclusion well then it's inevitable and there's nothing that can be done that's really not the message of jeremiah and in fact as we go through the book of jeremiah one of the things you're going to keep finding is god saying using this phrase if Fill in the blank, which is usually involved about repentance, uh, destroying the idols, and and following after him alone. If Israel will repent, then I will relent, and he'll use that word relent a lot. That is, I will stop. I will. I won't go that direction. I won't. I, I won't pour the pot out, if you will. The pot's boiling. I'm ready. I can invoke this on my time, at my in my on my terms, in my time. And uh, it, it is ready. I don't have anything else that I really need to wait for. It is simply my mercy and my grace toward Israel that is giving them the season of about 40 years to respond. If they respond with all their heart, and not just superficially, and if you think that God doesn't know the difference, we are the greatest fools if we think that. God knows the difference between a superficial praying of a prayer um, and, or a confession of faith, Uh, that's in the midst of believers who will applaud that confession. He knows the difference between that confession, the confession of faith, in the front of those who would take your life for that very confession. He knows the difference between those two hearts. He distinguishes them. And so he says if there is a genuine heart change in Israel on a large scale, I mean the scale that God is calling for Israel to do this for is not just one or two in leadership but uh, as a people, that they will do so. Because we know that there are several who are not following after the Baals and the Ashtoreths and the uh, other idols and the and the uh, evil that Judah is engaged in because they are going to surface in captivity. They're going to surface in Babylon, and we know them. Uh, so there are handfuls of people who are serving the Lord, but God is calling for a... a societal reform. He is calling for Judah to reform her ways on a national level. He's talking about the people bending their will and bending their hearts uh, as well as their knees before him as the one true and living God. And we're going to look at why he expects that here this morning. But he says, I have the pot boiling. It's ready. I, I can pour it out any moment. I can you know, I can cook your goose anytime. Uh I can... Bring it in. It's coming. I've, already, I've even told you where it's coming from. It's coming out of the north, he says. And there's you know, out of the north I'm stirring things up. Calamity is going to break forth on all the inhabitants of the land. I'm calling all the families of the kingdoms of the north. They shall come and each one set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem against all its walls all around, against all cities of Judah. And I'll utter my judgments against them concerning all their wickedness because they have forsaken me burn incense to the other gods, and worship the works of their own hands. So this is Jeremiah's general message. The Lord's judgment is at hand. And by at hand, it is not weeks, but years down the road. We have a seasoned opportunity to not only repent, but also to show our repentance. We have an opportunity for throughout this generation to give fruits of repentance so that it's, it's clear that this is who we want to be now. And I wish we could go through the book of Jeremiah and find evidence that there is even a glimmer of hope for that to happen. Uh, There is maybe one or two occasions where one or two voices speak up, or maybe a handful of voices say, no, this isn't right. We should be listening to Jeremiah. We should be heeding him. Um, But they are few and they are far between. Overwhelmingly, the response from the people is no. And not just a uh, we're going to ignore you. Hope you can go away. But a, a vehement, adamant, um, antagonistic. No, no. And not only do we are not going to listen to you. We want you to be quiet. We want to silence you. And so they're they're uh, determined to continue in the way they're going. And this is going to be from the priesthood, the false prophets, the kings. Uh, It's going to go all the way down to the women. And one of the things he lists here in this passage is the burning of incense to other gods. And we're going to find out later in the book of Jeremiah that that's really, uh, almost overwhelmingly, the women doing it. That the women were out there burning incense to all these other gods. It wasn't um, the men particularly involved in that. And the women's statement is, do you think we did this without our men's knowledge? But the fact is that the women were the one involved in this. They had given themselves over to this practice that God is going to destroy Israel or Judah for. And so we find that all the way along from the highest and to the leaders of the people, uh, to the spiritual leaders of the people, down to... Uh, the general population and the women and and even with some of their children being sacrificed and we're going to find this happening and it's and uh, it's deplorable and so god says the pot's boiling i i see what's going on and they think i'm doing nothing but in fact i've got something on the stove just waiting for them it's bubbling away which means that it can be poured out at any point it is ready I can stir up Babylon anytime I please and bring them down here. But we find that instead what's going on up there in the north where the disaster is coming from we find that instead God is is expanding Babylon in other directions rather than south first of all. Uh, and in fact Nebuchadnezzar is going to be a little late coming down to, down to Jerusalem. It's really going to be too, because he needs some funds. He needs some material wealth and and we're going to talk about how he heard that there was so much wealth down in Jerusalem waiting for him uh, in their coffers. And that, of course, was Hezekiah's fault, uh, who a couple generations earlier had exposed Israel's wealth, Judah's wealth, to the men who had come to worship the God who moved the heavens backwards. Ten degrees. And so we find that God is stirring it up, and it's ready, and... and. Uh, he is prepared to do all of this, and he speaks these things in, in very strong declarations that this is what he will do. He will do, he will do. And this is God's way, is that he has set his purpose. And the only way to prevent that purpose from being accomplished is through repentance, and so this is Jeremiah's message. And so as we have seen in other weeks already past, we have looked at the need for Jeremiah to prepare himself for that kind of message to share against a people who are going to be his enemy, that he is going to have to confront them on a daily basis sometimes on occasions and and have to be denigrated by them. He's going to be instructed by the Lord on times of uh, not to cry he's going to be told sometimes not to uh, pray he's going to be told uh, to be this this stanchion of of strength for israel this place of uh, of immovability that he had described here in our text as a bronze wall that you're just going to be this powerful force that no one can move. They're going to beg you and plead you to change your message. You're going to have some kings call you to the presence, hoping you've changed your mind and can say something different. But you're not going to change your mind, because my purposes are already in motion. They're already in motion. The pot is boiling. The almond tree is budding, is blooming, and it's it's all going to happen. And really, the only way for it to be avoided is not from you changing your message. It's from... The people changing their lives, changing their hearts. And we find that that same circumstance exists today, that we have churches that are out there wanting pastors to change their messages. And largely, unfortunately, many pastors have obliged. If you're not going to show up, if I preach that kind of preaching, then I'll change my preaching to fill the seats keep the offerings up, to pay the bills, um, or to just expand my reach of my ministry. Um, and so they accommodate the people with a message that they want to hear. And they aren't sly about this. I mean, this is, this is, they write books about it. Um, we had the whole seeker ministry outreach uh, that between two churches in our country, one in Chicago, one in California, and that write books, and their statement is that we are, have a message that we, our purpose is not to offend, and so we we tailor our message to the needs and interests and and itches of our listeners, and that's in their book. And so Saddleback Community Church with uh, Rick Warren writes very clearly. We have a guy we call Saddleback Sam, and we interview all the. Community to find out what their interests are and what they are looking for. And then we tailor our message to match their interests. And that's how you fill the pews. That's how you bring them all in. And we have stopped being a bronze wall a long time ago. Jeremiah didn't have this permission to tailor his message to the desire of the king. The king comes in and says, oh, please, can you just say something good this time? No, I'm a bronze wall. You can throw your fiery darts at me, you can attack with sword, with whatever you want, and it's not changing. And this is a wonderful Description. You're going to be a bronze wall, a fortified city, an iron pillar. These are the terms made for Jeremiah. Uh, An immovable force that, that they can dunk you in a miry pit and leave you there to die. And still, you will come out of that pit and the first things out of your mouth will be, the Lord is going to judge this land. We're like, oh, can we not get beyond that? Can't you see that's costing you so dearly? He's going to have to be a bronze wall um, because of the horrific things he's going to have to see as well. There's going to break upon that wall to such a degree that God down the road is going to say, Jeremiah, don't get married. Do not have children because what is coming is so hideous that those relationships may tarnish your wall, may weaken It may encourage you to abandon this message. It may be a break in the fortifications of your city. It may be a bending in the iron that you are called to be. So this is his message. And it's laid forth not just in an adamant fashion, but in a very reasonable fashion. And this we need to understand is that these men were not just out there with no introduction, with no logical development, screaming at people to repent. That is not what the prophets were about. And you can go down, and I've gone down to the city, and there are those that want to run around in, at the city hall and, and in the plaza there. And, and I remember going down there once with Valerie and very got to confront all of these people. Repent, repent. And I'm like, what? And, uh, oh, you need this, this, this. I said, you don't know me. And I just started talking to them. And, and um, I said, look at how everybody's responding to you. They're avoiding you. You're not having any influence here because you're not engaging people. You're running around screaming things that just make people want to get away. That's not what the prophets were like. And that's what I want to introduce you. When he has this message to go out there and do it, he's not, uh, if any prophet, by the way, was like that, it was Jonah. Um, he's just going to walk through the city, and, hey, Lord's going to destroy you in just a few days. But even then they listened because of the nature of his ministry. But here Jeremiah has a a history and a logic and an argument that he's going to use uh, and I'm not talking about an argument like he's going to fight them, but rather a, a series of thoughts that, that defend and, and make it reasonable to most men that this is why it is necessary and that we have brought upon ourselves. And we are introduced to this in chapter 2. And I want you to look and hear this statement. Go and cry in the hearing of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord. So here he is. He is going to yell. He is going to speak loud enough for people to hear. But listen to his words. Thus says the Lord. Here it comes. Here's his first real message, if you will, that he has to have be an iron pillar, a fortified city, a bronze wall with. Here it is. Here's what the Lord says. I remember you. The Lord remembers you. You haven't remembered him very well, but the Lord remembers you. He has been not gone on a trip. He hasn't forgotten. He hasn't been, uh, has just disconnected himself. He's not far away and uninvolved. He is watching. He is engaged. He is remembering. He is uh, still in a relationship with you even though you aren't in a relationship with him why is he persisting in this relationship? We find that it is because of what when they were young as a nation, that is when they were coming out of Egypt. He talks about the kindness of your youth, the love of your betrothal when you went after me in the wilderness in a land not sown. Israel was holiness to the Lord. The first fruits of his increase, all the devouring will offend. Disaster will come upon will come upon them. He remembers what it was like now. God doesn't have rose-colored glasses. We can go through the book of Exodus and Deuteronomy, uh, even Numbers, and we can look and say, um, that wasn't 100% peachy all the time in the wilderness. There was rebellions, there were times where people complained and God wanted to destroy them all. But um, as they came through that time, and they, they, you still have the overwhelming majority that follow after the Lord. And while a generation might say, well, the whole purpose of the wilderness, all was to have a whole generation die in the wilderness, but that was to purify them. By the time you get to the time of Joshua, you have a people that are genuinely committed to God and doing anything and everything God demands of them uh, and instead of being the general populace sitting with a few righteous people, you have the general populace being righteous with one or two that violate it and everybody pays for it, like Achan and his sin. Uh, you have those as the aberration. They're the odd ones, not the normal ones. And he says, I remember that time when, when by and large as a people, you followed after me and you were faithful to me. You were, you were, Loving toward me, you followed my leadership and you responded to me. And when there was complaint and, and I brought judgment, you looked to the serpent on the stick and you lived. You came to me and when anyone came against you, disaster fell upon them. And I defended you and you followed me and, and I remembered that as... Uh, a courtship, and as our honeymoon, if you will, it's really the terminologies here, we'd say, back in the honeymoon days of our relationship. Uh, I remember that. And because I remember that, I'm sending you these prophets. These are not acts of aggression. These are not acts of, of anger. God sends the prophets to declare that he is angry, but that act of sending a prophet to tell you and to warn you and to call you to repentance is a loving act of God. And the image that he's going to use here is one of a marriage that's gone bad. And he's going to use that a lot throughout the book of Jeremiah on several occasions. He's going to use that terminology that here, I was faithful to you all these years, and you have gone after all of these other gods, and now uh, I'm still willing to take you back. And he says, that wouldn't be allowed under the law, but I am even going that far. Of course, they didn't come back. But that was the imagery that he's going to be using later on in the book of Jeremiah. And so here is the foundation of hearing, thus says the Lord. The foundation is, God remembered you. And as we talked about last week, the book of Jeremiah, while we might look at it as judgment and warning and curses and, and, and trouble and, and evil, um, oh, that we would keep, and I'm going to work really hard at keeping you on track to understanding this book is a wondrous act of God's mercy, love, and grace to the people of Israel. To warn them off. To keep the pot from being poured out onto them that's boiling on the stove. It is ready to be brought to bear. Can you avoid it? The answer is yes. That's why God sends the prophet, but you're going to have to respond. And instead, like the days of old in the land of Israel, It's the guys that we don't want to listen to. We want to silence. We want to marginalize them. We want to destroy that because we do not want to heed the message. And so this is what God wants them to understand is that, first of all, um, we have a relationship, you and I. We have a covenant agreement with each other. And it's out of my commitment to that agreement that I am sending men like Jeremiah to you to call you back to it out of your unfaithfulness. And these are great, wondrous acts of mercy for God to say you can go out and and be with all those other gods and I'll still take you back if you'll just give them up. Just give it up and I'll take you back. And here he begins by saying, I remember you, with the implied question is, do you remember him? And so now we have, we say, well, this is a great message, this is good. Yeah, we want to hear this prophet, he's talking about how God loves us and remembers us and our relationship with him. Um, but there's an ominousness to these first two verses of Jeremiah's public message. And that ominousness is um, the fact that you are in a covenant agreement with God. You are in a relationship with Him. He remembers it, and He remembers the the uh, agreements. He remembers the the uh, line items of the covenant. He remembers every facet of it. He has upheld his part, and he is about to review them with you. And so the the, to, the declaration that you are in a covenant relationship with someone uh, to Israel in their condition there in Jerusalem, you might say, well, that's kind of obvious, and they would enjoy that, but I'm not so sure. I think they probably recognize the ominousness of this, that God is talking past tense. We made a covenant with him, but are we in it? this covenant with Him? Are we living in such a manner? And this is what He's going to bring out in the verses to follow. Verse 4 says, Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, and all the families of the house of Israel. Verse 5, thus says the Lord. A series of questions comes forward from God. God has this question to give us. and, And I think there should be just a little sideline statement here. Um, Even in the ministry of Christ uh, and in other ministries uh, revealed for us in the New Testament, um, it's amazing to look at how often God uses this format and asks his servants to use this format of engaging people by asking them questions to solicit from them an idea of what is just, an idea of what is right, an idea of of who is in the right place, who is faithful—is it God or is it you? Who who is in the proper position here, uh, and who is being uh, equitable in this relationship? And so he uses questions, and they're very startling. Let's look at them. First question. Verses 2 and 3 were a declaration. Now we have queries. What injustice have your fathers found in me that they have gone far from me? Have followed idols and have become idolaters? I want you to notice, first of all, that God has recognized that the problem is generational. In other words, it's not just this generation that's done evil. And in fact, the kings that really started the fire under the pot have long since gone. And so he talks about the fathers. And that, let's go back to the history of your idolatry, because idolatry didn't start today, it started generations ago. So let's talk about your forefathers. Let's examine how you got to where you are today. Let's look back at the forefathers. Let's get back at the history of the church and see how the church get in the state, the condition it is today, that may stand up and soil the message of the gospel in order to draw a large crowd and are afraid to offend anybody and thereby call themselves successful. And we think of them as great preachers. How do we get to this place? And so God invites the study of history. What was it that turned your forefathers from complete allegiance to God, to following after idols. What was it? And his question is, was there something I did wrong? Did God let them down? Did God not fulfill his part of the covenant? And his first question, um, and and by the way, it's very indicative of a relational question. When one person violates a covenant agreement, um, the other person asks, what did I do to deserve this? What did I do to you? How, was, how did I mistreat you? That you would go off and do this and be unfaithful to me. Uh, I've been faithful to you. And so God asks, what is the injustice? What have I done to you? What have I done to your forefathers? Let's look back at that. Let's not make this about you just yet. Let's make this about your forefathers. What did I do to them? And that's an easy place to start. Uh, it's a good place, really, because now you've just told them that God remembers that he is your God and you're his people. He remembers a relationship way back there when everybody was holiness to the Lord. Uh, That is set apart. Now, your forefathers, the intermediate generation somewhere along there, um, left off from me. Did they have cause for it? That's the question God asks. Did they have cause to become unfaithful to me? Did I give them cause in any way? And if we look through history, the invitation is an impersonal one. Yet it is personal. Um, You're looking not at yourself, but you're looking at a previous generation. Right? So let's look at dad and mom. Let's look at grandma and grandpa. Let's look at great-grandma and great-grandpa. What were they thinking? (laughs) And it's always easier to do that, isn't it? Let's just be honest. It's always easier to say, what were they thinking instead of what was I thinking? So let's start there. And God starts there. What was it with your fathers that they introduced idolatry into the land of Israel? Way back in the time of Elijah. And even before that, to some degree, we see it a little bit in the time of Samuel. um, But we find, what was it that, that brought interest among your forefathers in the false gods of the nations around you that were weak and beggarly That never talked, that never did anything, that you had victory over because I gave you victory over it. What? What have I done? What injustice did I do? How did I break the covenant? How? What did I do that your forefathers would have introduced idolatry into the land? He comes with yet another query. It doesn't sound like much of a question in verse 6, but it is a question that he's asking. Neither did they say, Where's the Lord who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through the land of deserts and pits, through the land of drought and the shadow of death, through the a land that no one crossed and where no one dwelt. Why didn't they remember? Essentially what God just said is, Why... If they had an accusation against me, why didn 't they ask, where are you lord and it 's fascinating to look at david 's life. How often did David have adversaries most of his most of his life and if you read through the psalms, what does he keep doing? If you read through some of those psalms right now in our word of life clubs um, they 're oh maybe not i 'm way i 'm like six weeks ahead of them. sorry. Uh, they'll get to it this year. Um, there are a lot of Psalms that, that just goes through and David says, Lord, where are you? I need you. Don't leave me. Don't abandon me. Don't let my enemies have victory over me. Don't give them cause because I have tried to justly serve you. And so, Lord, protect me, guard me, be my rock, my fortress, my deliverer. And, and he asks this question, where are you, Lord? I need you to intervene right now. And God essentially says, if somewhere along the line they had cause to to think I wasn't being faithful to our covenant agreement, why didn't they cry out to me? And why didn't they remember that I was the God that brought them out of Egypt? That power I used to bring them out of Egypt and to get them through the wilderness, I could use for them now if they would call on me. But they didn't. They wouldn't call on me. Why, not that, why didn't they say that? Why didn't they ask, where's the Lord? But they didn't even seek him. They ran to Baal. They adopted the idols of the gods of the other nations. And it seems that they had forgotten all that God had done for them. And he reminds them, verse 7, I brought you in a bountiful country to eat its fruit and its goodness, but when you entered, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. Notice that he has switched from they to you. As a nation now, accept the fact that your national history, the history of your people, now you have to accept ownership of it because you are that nation now. And we can somehow try to divorce ourselves from the, our forefathers, but the fact is you are living out their mistakes, their errors, their evil ways are being borne out in this generation and you need to own it. Because you certainly want to own the fact that you have a covenant agreement with me way back there at Mount Sinai, just out of Egypt and having just crossed the Red Sea on dry, dry ground. You want to, we want to remember that. You want to own that. Then you're going to have to also own the fact that what your forefathers have done in, in poisoning and polluting this land with idolatry, you have a part in that because you carry it on. You cause it to persist when it should be abolished in the land. In verse 8, we find yet another question that Jeremiah has to ask the people by the Lord's voice. The priests did not say, remember, Jeremiah is the son of a priest. So who is he picking on, Dad? Here we go. His forefathers. These are Jeremiah's forefathers, personally. The priests did not say, Where's the Lord? And those who handle the law did not know me. Those are the the scribes, if you will. The rulers who also transgressed against me. That would be more of the Levites. The prophets uh, prophesied not by God, but by Baal, and walked after things that do not profit. Here's the condition of the land. No one was seeking after me. I was there, no one asked, where's the Lord? Even the priests, whose job was to ask, was to seek after me, they failed. And so yes, I'm I'm always more than ready to put my profession on the block. Because they have failed the church in our generation, and the prior one too, for that matter. Liberalism isn't the denial of the inerrancy of scripture the denial of some of the cardinal truths of God's word the denial of the of the miracles of the seven day six day creation seventh day narrative uh, the denial of of all of this is nothing that just came about recently it's been around for 80 years hundred years it's been. Growing and and taking over seminary after seminary, denomination after denomination, church after church. And when the people whose job is to direct people to the Lord and intervene for them before God fail to do so, oh, the people of God are in trouble. And so Jeremiah is more than ready to point the finger at his own. His own family. His own forefathers. And say, they're not asking the question. The people aren't asking it. But neither are the priests asking, where is the Lord? The ones who are expert in the law. Now when we get to the time of Jesus, that would be the scribes and the Pharisees uh, and the the leadership, the Sanhedrin. Um, These people are pointed out by Jeremiah. They are not handling the law, they don't, they, they, their job is to know the law, but they don't know the one who gave it to them. They don't have a relationship with God, they, they're engaged in the law and this is what Jesus takes the Pharisees to task for. You sit here and, and want to s- finally slice up the law and divide it and, and apply it, but you don't even know the guy who gave it. You don't under- know the underlying principles of the law, you don't understand the purpose of the law. And you certainly don't have a relationship with the one who gave the law. So Jesus encounters the same thing in his age. And then we are introduced in verse 8 to the false prophets. And these will take us into the generation of Jeremiah. The prophets prophesied by Baal. And this sets up a conflict scenario for the rest of the book of Jeremiah. You have the son of a priest pointing the finger of God's accusation against the priesthood of Israel. We have a prophet of God pointing the finger at the prophets of Israel. The false prophets. And this is going to, this conflict is going to be repeated over and over and over again. The book of Jeremiah, it's introduced here. As Jeremiah very quickly addresses this in the very first public declarations that we have from him to the people, we have him identifying the problem is spiritual leadership. It's, It's not only misguided. It's not only lacking, it is evil. And it's time we start to understand that. Um, But we have grown very weak in the discernment category of that. Uh, And it shows. It shows um, right now, I think that the plainest showing of it really um, is in our description in the political realm of who are Christians. What Christians are running for president right now? What Christians were running for president last time? Um, and it's fascinating to see people defending and and coming into league with ones that historically are cults, and that's true today. And, and so we had uh, a Mormon, and so we were supposed to get behind the Mormons because they at least back our ethics and and uh, we we're trying to uh, dovetail with them somehow because we have politically similar interests. And now one of the lead runners is a Seventh-day Adventist, and, and we have to look at that and say, well, are they our brethren? And, and boy, I'm reading through some of my friends' descriptions. And I, I, he has to be a believer because he says this, 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 and this. And I'm like, that needs to get out of, This error. He needs to stop following after this falsehood. You can't have it both ways. Either you're a Jeremiah or you're a prophet of Baal. There was no in-between here. Um, You're going to find that all through the book of Jeremiah. There's the truth of God and there's the lie. And if you think the lies were blatant and demonic, um, we're going to discover them several times because he's going to directly address them You know what the lies are based on? The promises of God. Oh, that can't happen because of the promises of God. They took half the truth, built an entire doctrine on it, and spoon-fed it to the people who it tasted like sugar to them, and so they gobbled it up. And that's how Satan sells lies to Christians. Take half a truth, wrap it in pretty packaging, spoon feed it, and we swallow it. And then we become confused. And we go, well. And these are cults, these are the prophets of Baal in our age. And they grow mightily, not among the world, but their largest numbers are converted from the church. Their largest numbers come from Baptists, Presbyterians, and Methodists, who historically had some very strong positions in now we have muddied that and said, oh, it's all Christian and we want to see these just as other denominations. The fact is, is that we have fallen so far we hardly can recognize and we would never tolerate someone standing up saying, this is error, this isn't profitable, this is evil and God will judge it. The fact is we must. We must be the bronze wall, the iron pillar, the the fortress that stands and says there is a truth that must be adhered to. And it's more than just a series of certain words set to your own meaning that are the clues that tell us that you're one of us. There's something more substantial because every single recipient of these messages of Jeremiah could say these words. We are the children of Abraham. We are the keepers of the temple, the priests. We are the followers of Moses, the law. Every single one of the people Jeremiah is preaching to can make that declaration, and his statement about them was that they're evil in their heart. They're going their own way and not God's way, that they were idolaters. They were covetousness. That they were covetors. They were they were breaking the law, even as they sought to invoke the law to defend themselves. And so God asked the questions: Where is the leadership to decry all this? But instead, they are complicit to it all. And now comes the charge very quickly. Verse 9, therefore I will yet bring charges against you. And he's dealt with the past. He has brought it into your future and now made you responsible for your generation propagating the same error. And now he's going to press you into the future. Your past, your present, and now it's even your future. Look at it. He says, I'm not just going to bring this against you. I'm going to bring it against your children's children. This is going to go two more generations. Remember, Jeremiah is going to preach for 40 years. Then, uh, well, although he doesn't, he probably goes about 30 years, 32 years before he actually the, the captivity begins. And then 70 years they're going to be in captivity. So you're talking a hundred years here. And so rightly does God say it's not just about you, it's about your kids, and it's about your grandkids that I'm going to bring judgment against them. I have a charge. I have a a reasonable engagement with them that I want to challenge you with that if you don't break this cycle in your generation, that it will have these ramifications down the road, that your children will be in captivity if you don't survive the next 35 years. Your children will be in captivity. And if they don't survive, because many of them will be slaughtered, your grandchildren will be do you care do you care and from a historical perspective I got to tell you that from what I can tell, most of these kind of churches and preachers they don't care they care about this generation they care about building their structure to their with their name on it, so and so ministries with uh, and selling their books and philosophies and propagating it with a devil-may-care attitude about what it, its results are upon the future. And One of the most difficult things we do is to sit down and think about where is this going to go. There's a little movie that I like to watch. I watch it probably two times, three times a year that I have. It's called Time Changers. And uh, my kids have to sit down and watch it every now and then. It's just a rule in our house, kind of. Well, now that there's only one kid in my house, so They're off the hook now. Um, And the whole idea is, here we are in the 1800s, Can and a guy introducing an idea, a philosophy, and a guy says, let's go to the 1900s, 2000, and let's see how it works out. The guy goes, oh, I was so wrong, because he didn't think about the ramifications of it. And we are living the disaster of the liberal model of abandoning the authority of God's word, attacking its inerrancy. We are living the results of a generations ago that began to question and put science first to interpret the Bible instead of the Bible to discover science. It was not that way long ago. Men like Isaac Newton and the such started with the scriptures and then went to Their world to discover it. And so the charge isn't against just us, but against its effect upon our children and our grandchildren. How you live matters. What we choose, we must live not just for a week or two or a month, but for generations. And the question is do you care? The question that Israel is confronted with, do you even care? Can you even think that you should change your ways for the sake of your children and grandchildren? Because if you don't repent, I won't relent. And they will go into captivity and many of them will die because of your sin that you're persisting in today. And so the call is a strong one. But I want you to notice that while it's adamant and strong, It is a reasonable one. It is built upon a history. It is built upon your complicity in that history of living it out and and not questioning its origin and not going back and saying, are these philosophies in our country that are extant and being heralded in our churches sometimes, are they even biblical? And I've tried to walk you in that process of, of not taking everything you've been taught Um, and everything you hold to all of your belief systems as gospel truth simply because they came from your parents or grandparents or from the heritage of our nation but rather to look and investigate God's word to say is this the mind of God or is this the mind of Americans and that has brought us into some areas of (laughs) conflict and of challenge and because we are addressing some of the very, very fundamental philosophies that you have been ingrained with, not just your life, but for generations that aren't biblical at all. And we will have to address them again throughout the book of Jeremiah. The question really is, can we care about the future enough and recognize the error of the past to listen today? Today. And mend our ways. This is the call Jeremiah has to give. And he's going to give it over and over again for 40 years plus. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for your word. And we pray you might uh, keep us in it. And where our ways are not your ways, that you might convict us of them. That we might give some thought. Actually recollect and consider that just because it is historical doesn't make it correct. Just because it has quote unquote worked in the past doesn't mean that your hand was blessing it, and that we have responsibility in our age, not only for ourselves but for generations to come should they come. To set a pattern of righteousness, of biblical thought and behavior, and actions, and words. Lord, help us in this. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.